My name is Gerald Graham. I'm one of the elders here at Bethany. Our two pastors are away. Pastor Adam's on vacation and Pastor Chris is, is accompanying our young people at the Creation Festival. So let's ask the Lord's uh, blessing on our time here this morning. Father, we come into your presence and we acknowledge that we're needy creatures. Lord, we're in need of a Savior and you sent us one. We're in need of forgiveness of sins and he provided that. And we thank you for that. Father, we pray this morning that as we look into your word that you might again cause us to be filled with praise and thanksgiving for what you have done for us. Lord, we just thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for the singing. We thank you, Lord, that through singing we can be drawn closer to you. And we just pray now that as we look at your word that you would just challenge our hearts and help us again to renew our thanksgiving and our praise to you. For it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. As I said, I'm Gerald Graham, one of the elders of the church. I'm not a pastor, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn once. (laughs) If you're a guest with us this morning, I I welcome you, and we're glad that you're here, and I would invite you to come back next Sunday and hear the real guy. So don't don't make your assessment or your judgment on our church by my attempt up here this morning. When the pastor goes away, all kinds of things happen. We put baseball cards in the front of the bulletin. And bear with me, that'll make sense to you after bed. And we also got the pulpit back. <laughs> now, I only need that so you can't see my knees shake. It's, it's not that my message is any more powerful or any more important than his. Please don't interpret it that way. But I, yesterday I am uh, part of a men's group here, and Lee Brubaker asked me, he said, would you like the pulpit up front? I said, man, would I ever like the pulpit up front? So that's why it's here. It'll probably be gone next Sunday, and that's okay. Everyone has their own uh, method of, of speaking, and I happen to like this in front of me so that uh, it just gives me something to hold on to. Also, I want to be completely honest about being up here. I feel totally unqualified to do this. And I think that was the most difficult part of agreeing to do this, was that I I struggle with sin in my life. I'm not perfect. So who am I to stand up here and attempt to preach God's word? But I'm going to do that this morning with your prayer that will help me get through. I'm always reminded of a song that Mark Johnson has sung here a number of times. It's called Why Me, Lord? I don't know if you remember that song, and and I'm not going to sing it to you. But why me, Lord? What have I ever done to to deserve even one of the pleasures that I've known? And that's my theme this morning as we go through this message. Have any of you ever ever collected baseball cards? Yeah, there's quite a number. I heard a young person over, over here saying, yeah. Do any of you still collect cards? All right, there's a few that do, and that's great. I do too. There's just some very special cards that I look for. I don't collect cards in, in general any longer. But as a child, it was a big thing to me to collect baseball cards, and, and my son as well. Uh, 
we collected cards together through the many years that uh, he was at home, and I'm sure now he has better things to spend his money on so he doesn't collect cards like we used to. But did you take care of your cards as a young person? All right, somebody's saying, yeah, they must put them in these little plastic sleeves. You know what, as a child, when I had baseball cards, you know what I did with them? I mean, I, I would enjoy them and play with them and do things with them. But I also used to make bike flappers. Does anybody, how many, how many of you know what a bike flapper is? All right. I, I thought I might, I might be the only person that has any idea what a bike flapper is. So I used to take a lot of my cards and you fold them and put them in the spokes of your bike. And when you ride around there, they, they're flopping around and making noise. And I don't know. We thought that was cool. But I also didn't, like, protect my cards. I, I, I handled them a lot. I put them into teams. I put rubber bands around them, which is a real faux pas if you want to protect your cards. One other thing I did, was, which was extremely stupid, but I didn't know better back then. When I was collecting cards, if I got a, for example, if I got a 1965 card of Mickey Mantle, I would throw the 1964 card away. I didn't need two. <laughs> I had a brand new one. So the 64 you throw away, the 65 you keep, and you put in your team's stack and put the rubber band around it, and there you go. Now, there's another thing that, that I did with, with my cards, and I want to just talk about this a little bit. I used to love to fiddle around in my dad's shop, so I made this neat little box when I was probably, I don't know, 12 years old maybe. So I took some of my older cards the ones that I would have thrown out, and glued them onto this box. Now, I want to talk about this box for a few minutes because there's, there's a ton of cards on here, but I'm going to show you a few that are key cards that are in this box. And one is Willie Mays, 1964 Willie Mays. Willie Mays is a Hall of Fame baseball player. That card, if it was in good shape and not stuck on this box would be worth anywhere from 40 to $54, depending upon the condition of the card. There's a Pete Rose rookie. Now, Pete Rose isn't any saint. We know that he should be in the Hall of Fame, but because of some stupid gambling things that he has done, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but he certainly has the statistics to qualify. That's his rookie card that I have glued inside this box. That card, if it wasn't stuck on the box, and was protected and taken care of is worth 200 to $350. I have a Kurt Flood card, and I'm not going to get into all baseball history. He, hold, he holds a, a, a pretty major piece of baseball history. He was a decent player. He wasn't a, a huge star, but he was the first guy that said, I'm not going to let a team trade me to somewhere I don't want to be. I'm going to play out my option and become a free agent. And that was illegal at that point in time. And uh, he, he kind of brought that whole case to court. So his cards are worth some money. And that card, if it's in good shape, is worth up to $125. Rusty Staub, rookie, he was a decent player. And even commons, which a common is a card of, a, of an average everyday player that aren't really stars. Commons of cards this old. And these are 1964 cards, by the way. Commons are worth anywhere from 4 to $36. And also on the outside of this box, I have, these are some 1965 cards. Now, also, I, want, I should back up. On that other one, I had a, a Mickey Mantle shown, a 1964 Mickey Mantle that I at one time had glued inside the box. I tried to remove it because I realized how stupid I was for gluing them in the box and proceeded to tear the card and rip it up. So I don't even have that Mickey Mantle 1964. 
which is worth anywhere from $240 to $490. Now back to the 1965s. These are the three major stars that I have on here. And the, the main one there is Lou Brock, who's a Hall of Fame uh, baseball player. His card is worth anywhere from $28 to $40. Even commons that, of guys that weren't big stars, those cards are worth anywhere from $4 to $40. So depending upon how you calculate the cards on this box, if they were kept in pristine condition, are worth anywhere from $700 to $1,200. What are they worth today? Nothing, because some clown glued them onto the box. <laughs> So I didn't treasure my baseball cards as I should have, and I didn't treat them with care. I didn't value them like I, like I should have. And of course, back then as a child, you don't think of those types of things. But they were unappreciated treasure. And I think sometimes that we treat our salvation the same way. We don't appreciate it the way we ought to. We were born into a Christian family, a lot of us, not everyone here, but a lot of us were born into a Christian family. A lot of us, or most of us, if we're born in this area, you're born into a, quote, Christian community. And we don't see ourselves as wicked sinners saved by the grace of God. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, it says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In various translations, if you look at King James, it uses the term unspeakable. The English Standard Version, it uses the term inexpressible. So what do those words mean? Indescribable means not able to be fully explained or understood as beyond description. Unspeakable means marvelous, awesome, beyond human expression. It defies description. Inexpressible means indescribable, unutterable, cannot be expressed or explained. Their words don't exist to fully describe that term. So these are words that Paul used to describe our gift of salvation. It truly is an indescribable gift. It's riches that are available through Jesus Christ. These riches defy human comprehension and expression. So my attempt today is, is to just refresh our memory and get us to think about what we have been given in our salvation. And I'm going to use some words that may be not entirely familiar to you. And I would just ask you not to get hung up on the words. Say, oh, that's a big word. I'll never use it again in my vocabulary. Well, maybe that's the case. But let's think about the truth behind the words that I'm going to use. There are three purposes for what I want to do this morning. And that is sometimes it's just good for us as Christians to review and be reminded of what we have in Christ. The second purpose is encouragement. If there's someone here this morning that's going through difficulties in your life, just simply thinking about salvation and what is provided for us through Jesus Christ is a great encouragement. And my third reason is to draw some to salvation. There may be someone here this morning that has not made their relationship right with the Lord. If you Google blessings of salvation, one of the first things that came up was a a paper written by Reverend Thomas Tyree from California. And he had, the title of this paper was 40 Things Received at Salvation. So we better get to it if we're going to cover all 40 of those. (laughs) Actually, we're not. I've chosen 10, and I'm not sure I'm going to have time to get through all these, so if I I stop in the middle, (laughs) 
forgive me for that. That was another difficulty since I don't do this regularly to know really how much time to prepare and how fast I'm going to talk and how slow I'm going to talk up here. So I want to move to the first, the, the first term. And these are in your bulletin insert. Actually, there's a little blank at the uh, appropriate spot in your bulletin insert. The first word is propitiation. Now, Pastor Adam used this word last week, and it's interesting because he didn't know what I was going to talk about, and I didn't necessarily know what he was going to talk about. But propitiation, the definition that's listed in your bulletin insert, says averting God's wrath by satisfying the demands of his holiness. Propitiation is appeasement. It's looking upon with favor. It means that God is no longer angry with you and I because of our sinful past. Because of God's holiness, he cannot overlook sin. He must punish it. That's part of God being God. But then because of Christ's death on the cross, the punishment for sin has been taken care of. God has been appeased. We're guaranteed now God's mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is a withholding of punishment. We're guaranteed through Christ that God will withhold the punishment that we deserve and give us grace, which is God's goodness that we don't deserve. That's what happens with propitiation. Now, that propitiation is a King James word. The King James Bible uses it. If you look at the passages that I have up there, it says 1 John 4.10, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The King James used the word propitiation in there instead of atoning sacrifice. First John 2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's creation was perfect. And yet it didn't take too long for mankind to sin and turn their backs on God. When man sinned, God had every right to destroy and start over, but he didn't. God's anger was aroused, and yet through the stories of the Old Testament into the New Testament, God finally sent Christ as an atonement, as a propitiation for our sin to appease his anger. Christ's death on the cross satisfied God's natural anger towards sin. The second word is substitution. Substitution is dying in the place of another. The just for the unjust. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. In Romans 5.6-8, you see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All through the salvation story, one of the unique things about God is that he does this despite our sinfulness and our wickedness and our turning our backs on him. It says in in Romans 5 that while we were still sinners, we didn't do anything to make God love us. We were still sinners. He sent Jesus Christ to die for us as our substitute. Simply put... The substitution is Christ taking your place on the cross. Because of our deep offenses and sin towards the holy God, we should have been hung on the cross as punishment for our sins. In the movie, The Passion of Christ, I assume a lot of you saw that movie a number of years ago. 
there was extreme violence and abuse poured out on Christ such that it was hard to actually watch. And there, there were portions of that movie that I didn't watch. And yet, that should have been you and I receiving that abuse and punishment. But Christ took it on our behalf. He was our substitute. Instead of being punished for our sins, figuratively speaking, we were in the crowd hurling insults at Christ. We sing a song here sometimes, and I forget the name of it. Forgive me, Jonathan could probably tell me right away. But one of the lines from that song that every time we sing it, I get tears in my eyes. It says, I heard my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. That's what you and I were doing, and yet Jesus took our place and died for us on the cross when it should have been us that was hanging there. The next word is reconciliation. Now, reconciliation has a, a relationship definition, like as in you and I can be reconciled if we have some difficulty or something has come between us. And that's how we think of the word reconciliation. But reconciliation is changing a relationship from enmity to friendship. It's bringing disagreeing parties together. It's the process by which God and people are brought together again. Our natural condition is alienation from God because of his holiness and our sinfulness. Let's look at some of these, a couple of these verses, 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the second half of that verse gives us a responsibility. We have to be reconciled to mankind, but that's not our, our focus this morning, is that Christ reconciled us to God. Romans 5, 8 to 10, this is a continuation of the Romans 5 passage that we read uh, previously. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That relationship between God and man has been eternally broken because of sin, and the only way for it to be repaired is for God to send someone to bring about reconciliation. A relationship of hostility and alienation is now changed to one of peace and fellowship. Reconciliation is God's completed act so that we can have fellowship with him and that sin is no longer a hindrance or a break between us and God. In disagreements with other people, if we're the one that's wronged, it's hard to initiate reconciliation, isn't it? We just always want the other guy to come to us. He, he wronged us. Do you think about what reconciliation means in a spiritual sense? We wronged God unbelievably. And because of our sin and our enmity toward him, he was still willing to reconcile that relationship. God moved in our direction to initiate reconciliation. For we were at one time God's enemies, and yet he, through Christ, was willing to move towards us. Redemption. Redemption, the definition that's in your insert in your bulletin is paying the price for deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. Redemption is buying back. It releases us from sin. It's paying the price. It's the deliverance from the power and the penalty in the presence of sin. 
Salvation from sin, death, and the wrath of God is accomplished by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Redemption comes at a tremendous cost. It cost Christ his shed blood. Redemption is our personal deliverance from the slave market of sin. We are bought back, so to speak. You see, in, in Bible times, slaves were able to be redeemed when someone paid money to buy back their freedom. We were created to be God, to be God's children. I don't want to say we were created to be God. We were created to be God's children, and yet we turned our backs on him and became slaves to sin. Romans three twenty three and 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but the empty way of life handed down to you... I'm sorry, I'm not reading that correct. That you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Redemption is not accomplished by something that we can do something that we can give, money. It's only accomplished by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Christ redeemed us and bought us back. All sin makes us sinners, and all sin cuts us off from a holy God. But God, through Christ, had to buy back what was his in the first place. Think about that. God created us in the Garden of Eden perfect, and yet we turned our back on him. Now God has to buy us back when he created us in the first place. Regeneration. Regeneration is imparting a new nature through the second birth. Regeneration is a change in nature from God. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. This is what takes place in regeneration. It's simply another term from the new birth or being born again, which is a term that Christians kind of throw around, and I'm not sure the world completely understands that. But it means that our life has been completely reversed and changed. It's been renewed. It's been reconstructed. The spiritual change brought about in our lives by an act of God. A person's sin nature is changed so that we can respond to God and receive all these things that we're talking about this morning. It is an act of changing from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. It involves an enlightening of the mind, a change of the will, and a renewed nature. It extends to our total self. We are completely changed and renewed. It occurs as an act of God through the Holy Spirit. If you look at Titus 3, 5... And I ask the question, what part did we play in our regeneration? It's pretty obviously stated, none. He says he saved us not because of righteous things that we've done. It's not something that we did that caused God to regenerate us, but it's completely a work that he does. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it talks about the old has gone. We have this inherent sin nature that causes sin to be at rule in our lives. And when we come to Christ, when we're regenerated, that sin nature is taken care of. It's old. We're to consider it dead. 
count ourselves dead to sin, for sin no longer needs to have power over us. We're recreated, we're new on the inside. We're not reformed, not rehabilitated, not re-educated, but we're completely recreated and regeneration, regenerated and made new in Christ. Imputation. Here's one of these words that if you use it tomorrow in a sentence, I don't even know what to say because you won't. <laughs> you won't use it. I won't either. This is a King James word, but there's a, there, there is a, an excellent meaning. And if you forget everything that I said this morning, I want you to remember this word because there is some, some excellent ideas and thoughts behind imputation. Imputation is being given Christ's righteousness in exchange for our sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Second Corinthians five twenty one: God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those two verses give us a glimpse of what the word imputation means. Imputation is to attribute a fault or a misconduct to someone else, charging something to another person's account. Our sin goes to Christ, and his righteousness comes to us. Now, I want to just stop for a minute and let let that thought go through your mind. Think about what kind of an exchange program that is. We give up sin, and we receive Christ's righteousness and goodness. There are three aspects to imputation. All of us were imputed, so to speak, the sin from Adam. So we can't escape that. We're born with that. We're born with that inherent sin nature. But then because of the work of Christ, and if we personally accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, then that sin that we've inherited goes to Christ. He takes care of it, cleans us up. We don't need to worry about it. It's no longer ours. But there's more. After that sin goes to Christ, he gives us righteousness. So Christ's righteousness comes back to us. So I ask you this morning, and I ask myself this morning, why do we hold on to our sin? Give it up. Look what we get in exchange. We get Christ's righteousness. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us and took it to the cross. The qualities of Christ are now given to us through what he has accomplished on the cross. We can now stand before him faultless. In Jude 24, it says that, that we can stand before Christ faultless because of this exchange. What an exchange program this is. We give up our sin and our filth, and God gives us holiness and righteousness. It's a free gift that's offered only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Our sin is poured, was poured into Christ as he hung on the cross. And his righteousness is poured into us at conversion. Adoption. Adoption spiritually means being placed in God's family. Adoption in the realm that we usually think of it is the act of taking voluntarily a child of another parent's as one's own child. It is the legal process by which a husband and wife brings a non-birth child into their family and creates 
and gives that child all the status and privileges of a biological son and daughter. Now, I have some familiarity with adoption. I have five adopted grandchildren and one that we hope to soon be adopted. And I ask any of you out there that are grandparents, do I love my grandparents, yeah, my grandparents, my grandchildren any less than you love your grandchildren if, you're, if you got your grandchildren through birth into your family? Absolutely not. I can guarantee you that. My grandchildren are the same as your grandchildren. They are, have all the rights and all the, adoption, all the benefits of being a member of our family, and I love them as much as any grandparent loves their grandchild. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Some of the translations take that full rights of sons passage and changes it to adoption. Receive the full rights of adoption. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Adoption in a spiritual sense is the act of God's grace whereby he brings sinful people into his family. This is a picture of our relationship with Christ. We're given all of the benefits that God showered on Christ. Those benefits are available to us now that we're adopted into his family. We have received our inheritance of eternal life. Through our relationship with Christ, we are now members of God's family, and we have an, can have an intimate, personal relationship with our Father God. And you might have heard this stated before, but the, the words Abba, Father, actually means Daddy, if we translated it into English. So it's not, as we think of God as our Father, someone high and lifted up, and God is that. I don't mean to demean that. But yet, through Christ, we can have a relationship with God that we can actually have that familiarity with him and call him daddy. God desires to give us the full benefits of adoption. Justification. Justification, in your bulletin's definition, is changing the sinner's status from condemned to justified. You may have heard this term before, but justification, an easy way to remember it, is just as if I had never sinned. And that's how God looks at us now when we have that relationship with Christ. He looks at us. He no longer sees our sin. He looks at us as being completely justified. It's as if we had never sinned. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 18 and 19, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The process by which we are made acceptable to a holy God is justification. It is God's declaration that the demands of his law have been fulfilled in the righteousness of his son. And it is an act of God's sovereign grace. 
When God justifies, he charges our sin to Christ and credits us Christ's righteousness. Now, remember, we just said what that definition is. That's imputation. That's part of justification, where we are given Christ's righteousness and our sins are taken care of by Christ. Justification, then, is only possible through the work of Jesus Christ, through his shed blood and the power of his resurrection. The slate is wiped clean. Our past sins are forgiven and forgotten. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far our transgressions are moved from us. Sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, we're not going to talk about the last part of that verse, but we're thinking about the first part. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctification is being set apart to God and becoming like Christ. It's set apart as holy. It's set apart for service to God. It is the act of becoming like Christ. Now you say, wait a minute, I can never achieve that. And we're not expected to achieve that on this earth, but we're expected to attempt to achieve that. Sanctification is the act of becoming like Christ. That's what God expects of his people. But it's also the process of God's grace by which the believer is separated from sin and becomes dedicated to God's righteousness. There are two two parts to sanctification. There's God's part, God's work, through his gift of his word and the Holy Spirit, God has given us what we need to become more like him. That's God's part in sanctification. But there's a human part, there's a believer's part of sanctification. There is an effort on our part to live holy lives to become more like Christ, to put to death sin and evil deeds, to put on the whole armor of God, to live out the fruit of the Spirit. All these things imply spiritual growth, and God expects spiritual growth on the part of his children. And finally, the last one, glorification. Glorification is ultimate perfection. Romans 8.10 says, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 1 John 3.2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Someday all the battles with sin will be over. In our eternal state, we'll receive glorified bodies. All the temptations, struggles, and sickness that we have to deal with on this earth will be taken away. In our glorified state, we will receive the perfection of Christ. All the things we struggle with will be gone. Our earthly walk with Christ will now be complete in our glorious union with Christ. For we shall receive our inheritance of eternal life. We're no longer aliens, but we will have a spiritual home. The Christian life is a process of becoming more and more like Christ. That's sanctification. We talked about that. But this process will not be complete until we see Christ in heaven face to face. Glorification is the ultimate state of the believer after death when we truly become like Christ. In conclusion, I stated at the beginning that there were three purposes for a message like this. 
One was to simply for review and knowledge. I think it's good for us just to hear what we have in salvation. The, third, the second one is encouragement. And the third one is to draw someone to salvation. 2 Peter 1, 12 and 13. If you want to turn to that in your Bibles, you can. It's not going to be up on the screen. 2 Peter 1, 12 and 13. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. And I thought that was an interesting passage because this is Peter reminding his listeners that when we live in our human bodies, we have a tendency to forget things and we need reminded. He said, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, it is right to refresh your memory. So that's one of my purposes this morning, just to refresh our memory and what it means to be born again and be a child of God. It's simply for review and knowledge. Outstanding coaches review the fundamentals constantly with their teams, and athletes that can do the basics well go on to excel in their sport. The same goes for our spiritual walk. We must not neglect the basics of faith. It is important that we dig deeper into God's word, but sometimes it's good just to step back and be reminded of those things that we already know. Peter reminds us that as long as we live in this tent, this earthly human body, we have faulty memories and need reminded of the spiritual blessings that we have. John 16:33. if you want to turn to that one. Part of the reason, again, for my message was to offer encouragement. In John sixteen thirty three, and these are the words of Jesus himself. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These verses are the words of Jesus. He just finished teaching his disciple, and he states the purpose for his instruction is to give encouragement. He warned them that in this life, not everything goes like we want it to. There are times of discouragement and difficulty, but in the midst of trouble, we can still have peace. How do we do that? One way is to focus on who we are and what we have in Christ. And that was my purpose of sharing some of these terms with you this morning. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have everything go your way. No, that's not correct. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. We can have abundant life despite going through life's difficulty and trials. A study on the blessings of salvation can certainly bring encouragement into our lives if we're going through some difficult times. And finally, Romans eleven thirteen and 14. I'd like to uh, read a couple of verses there. And this is the uh, last... Uh, reason for sharing my message this morning is that it might call someone to Christ. Romans eleven thirteen and 14, I am, this is a Paul speaking, and I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. That's an interesting verse. 
Paul says that he hopes that his preaching will make the Jews jealous so that they want to be saved also. So that's one of my purposes this morning. If you're sitting here this morning and you've never made your relationship with Christ right and you hear all these blessings that people in Christ have, you might say, I want some of that. That you might be jealous that you don't have it. If you're listening to these benefits of salvation and you're saying to yourself, I've never personally accepted God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, then today's your day. All of the benefits that we shared, that I shared about, that we, that we get through salvation are not yours if you're not a child of God. In Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul refers to those outside of Christ as children of wrath. That's not a pleasant term. That's not, even, not a pleasant thought. They're not reconciled to God. They're not in a right relationship with God. They are children of God's wrath. But God in his great mercy offers salvation to those who call on his name. We then become children of mercy. We move from being a child of wrath to a child of mercy. Perhaps hearing these things today caused you to consider your relationship with God. If you've not made that decision and you want to know more, please don't leave here today without asking someone what it means to be a child of God and to invite Christ into your life. Please stand with me for prayer. Father, we come into your presence this morning and we acknowledge that we've just touched the surface of what it means to be a child of yours. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would help these truths to take root in our minds, in my minds, and in the minds of the people here. Lord, that we might truly gain a new appreciation of the salvation that we have in you. And Lord, if there's any here this morning who have not called on your name for salvation, might today be the day that you would convict them, that you would cause them to have that desire, Lord, to turn their lives over to you. They would have that desire to have all of these blessings and many more. Lord, we're, we've read that there are over 40 benefits to becoming saved, and yet we've only touched on a few this morning. So, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, and we just praise you for who you are. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.